Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, welcome and thank you for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management special client event entitled Trending Now, Election 2020. Today's event is the 16th in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and Chairman of Signum Global Advisors, Charles Myers. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com. You can also find this and all other Rockefeller Capital Management special client events by searching for the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast in your favorite podcast player. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management's president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Great, Tom. Thank you very much. Uh, we're losing you a little at the end there. And um, welcome to uh, Rockefeller Clients, our uh, team at Rockefeller, friends of Rockefeller for, as Tom said, our 16th in the client series that we initiated upon uh, the outbreak of COVID-19 and the change in uh, so much of the world around us. Uh, I'm very pleased uh, uh, with the guests we have here today. Uh, this uh, topic is uh, intentionally focused uh, on, on this time frame, several weeks before the election as this really is starting to come to a head. So we're pleased, as Tom said, to have Charles Myers the chairman of Signum Global Advisors with us uh, today. As Tom said, uh, Charles and I are about to embark on a dialogue, uh, but we'll continue as we have in the last several sessions to take questions uh, through Microsoft Teams. You can uh, submit a question. Uh, I have tweaked some of my colleagues uh, who uh, sent it anonymously and then told me afterwards it was them. So please identify yourself. Uh, I will thank you for the question and highlight who you are. Uh, and then uh, ask uh, Charles the question. It's a nice interactive way to pull our clients and our team into this uh, this conversation. <laughs> so Charles Myers, uh, as, I, as I said, is chairman of Signum Global Advisors. Uh, he has an extensive uh, track record in um, uh, presidential and other elections really across the landscape, Senate, House, gubernatorial, mayoral races, uh, advising candidates, including uh, in the past Joe Biden and uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, prior to that, uh, he's, um, uh, or prior and contemporaneously, he's been in the financial space. He works with uh, financial institutions and many multinational businesses across a range of key topical issues, including uh, uh, different uh, uh, foreign policy, global trade policy, energy dynamics, geopolitics, impact of different governments and changes in government on policy that might affect the clients to whom he's speaking. So he's an acknowledged expert in the space. Uh, he uh, started his career or earlier in his career, he was a vice chairman of Evercore and a founding partner there. Um, graduate of Amherst College and has a master's in philosophy from Cambridge. So he comes uh, well-grounded uh, in lots of different spaces and we're fortunate and happy to have him with us here today. Uh, he spends all of his time in this space now watching, researching, and counseling clients on what might happen and what it means to them. So, Charles, good afternoon, and thanks for being with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, maybe we could start, Charles. I, I gave the overview, but uh, just for all the listeners, um, your uh, firm, um, Signum Global Advisors, exactly what it does, exactly who is the client base, the type of work that you do, and the foundation for all of the things we're about to talk about, the, the reason people should be listening to the advice that you're giving. Right, so uh, Signum Global is a firm I started about two and a half years ago. Uh, we are a global policy research firm. We look at everything around the world uh, in the policy uh, realm. So we've done a lot of work on Brexit, for example, a lot of work on US-China trade, a lot of work on oil in the Middle East, the emerging markets, and of course, uh, the Trump administration and now the election. Uh, our, most of the partners, there are 12 partners in New York, London, Washington, most of us have actually come from uh, the, the sell side, either fixed income or cash equities. So we also view ourselves as a markets-based company in that we try to be predictive in, in our research and tie everything back to either the markets um, or impact on the economy or uh, various sectors. Um, so that's what we do in terms of the election, this election and the for the purposes of this call, uh, we also tend to be pretty data driven. Um, you know, uh, polls were so wrong four years ago, and I know we'll get to that, but, but given how wrong they were on in the 2016 election, 
and also for Brexit and the Scottish referendum. I mean, so many uh, uh, instances where polling has been wrong. Uh, we really go much deeper than polling. We look at uh, a lot of we look at polling very closely, of course, but we also look at other data like voter registration data, for example. Uh, we look at fundraising numbers, which is always a, a very uh, good and early indicator of either enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm or momentum or lack of momentum in, in politics. Um, so we really look at a, a wide variety uh, of data before we come to any conclusions. That's great. And that's a good overview. So um, we're, uh, I think it's, and you'll uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but three weeks from yesterday, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so we're under three weeks, 20 days for those who are charting the days. I'm sure there are many. So why don't we go right there? If we were to start with something else, people would say, you know, who's who's doing your briefing, Greg? So let's go right to um, the election. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, you hear this a lot, at least I have in my lifetime. Uh, this is the most pivotal election in the, in the modern history. Uh, but hard to debate that this isn't a very important election given everything going on in the country and around the world on so many topics right now. So how do you see it coming out? I mean, uh, and, and let us know what drives that conclusion, and then we can talk about what might create a different result than where, what you see now. But let's start with just the point blank question. How do you see the presidential election coming out in 2020? Okay, great. So our base case, uh, which we've had uh, going back seven months, even pre-COVID, uh, in fact, going back, if I can, just to the very beginning of the year, our, our uh, base case was that Joe Biden would win the Democratic nomination. Uh, we got severely tested in that call, but we really stuck with it because when we were doing the deeper dive into the data, even back then when it looked like his candidacy was completely over, um, we, we were seeing in, in congressional districts um, that his support was much higher than some of the polls were picking up. And also in the primary coming in second actually really mattered. So the data was telling us Joe Biden was probably gonna win the Democratic primary. So we stuck with that call. And then once he won that, uh, we uh, said that we thought he would win the White House. And we've also stuck with that call. Our conviction on that has actually gone up uh, since COVID. Uh, and, and I'll get back to that in a second. Um, so our base case today is a Biden victory uh, on November 3rd and the Democrats taking the Senate by uh, somewhere between a two and three seat majority. So a pretty, you know, a, wor a working majority. Um, the, a couple of things that I would just say, uh, looking out, given that it's slightly less than three weeks, um, President Trump has a very big hill to climb to try to turn this around. And I say that you know, for some of the obvious reasons, which is that Joe Biden uh, is polling over 10 points ahead of President Trump. Uh, that's a very big gap and a very difficult gap, not impossible, but very difficult gap to close in three weeks. Um, uh, also, uh, very importantly, uh, you know, people like to say, well, the polls were so wrong four years ago, they're probably wrong again. And, and what's different this time? You know, and so just to, to focus on a couple key differences as we go through the next three weeks. Um, first of all, Hillary was never over 10 points ahead of Trump on a consistent basis four years ago um, in terms of the av an average of national polls. So Biden is further ahead than Hillary was. And you'll remember about a week from now, four years ago, the Comey, uh, uh, Comey came out with new email revelations on Hillary. And in fact, her lead over President Trump going into November had actually narrowed to just over 3%. Uh, so again, very big difference. If Biden maintains this lead or even something like this, uh, it is very different from four years ago. A couple other key differences uh, just to highlight. Um, you know, there are much fewer undecided voters this cycle. Uh, we, we estimated around 4%, maybe 5%. That's a very big change from four years ago when the undecided uh, block uh, of voters was uh, somewhere between 12 and 14%. Um, uh, again, people, most voters have made up their minds already this time. Uh, so, so what that tells us is that the polls are probably a little more accurate. The room, the, the margin of error, therefore, in polling might actually be smaller because, again, there are fewer undecideds. But it's a very key difference. Um, also, uh, today we don't have any viable third-party candidate on the Democrat on, on any side. Uh, Kanye West is obviously not a viable uh, candidate. Um, four years ago, there were two third party candidates that actually took votes largely away from Hillary. It's not the only reason she lost, but it was a contributing factor in a few states. Um, that doesn't exist today. And then uh, lastly, just quickly, Hillary had a very high disapproval rating 
four years ago. In fact, uh, I always like to use this stat. Um, she was the second most unpopular presidential candidate in terms of her in, in modern history, in terms of her disapproval rating on the day of the election. Uh, the highest uh, disapproval rating, most unpopular candidate was Donald Trump. Uh, she beat him by three million votes. So they were both deeply unpopular. And, and I, I raised that to say that um, uh, it, for two reasons. First, to say that it, that affected turnout. Turnout was very low in 2016, in part because a lot of voters, especially young voters and independents, didn't like either of their of the choices. Um, but also, given that the polling had showed Hillary was going to win, a lot of Democrats didn't even bother to turn out. So today we have the opposite situation. Joe Biden has a very high approval rating and a very low disapproval rating. President Trump's disapproval rating remains very, very high. Um, and, and the other related issue, just to say that on turnout, we expect record turnout from Democrats and independents. Uh, and it's already happening. 12 million Americans have voted. I mean, it's almost 10 percent uh, of people that intend to vote. It really, uh, uh, I mean, it, it is absolutely staggering the number of people that have either in person or mail, voted in person or, or mailed in their ballot. Um, and uh, we also look at that those numbers, and given that far more Democrats uh, have asked for mail-in ballots, uh, we think that's a, a preview of what will be record turnout by Democrats and independents. The last quick thing, if I can, just to say that one of the polls that we like to follow the most closely um, is the question is, and there are several polls that do this, but is the question uh, that's asked of voters regardless of party affiliation, do you think the country is heading in the right direction? And that poll is very damning, uh, very damaging for President Trump. Uh, the average of those polls is about 67 percent of voters think the country's heading in the wrong direction. Obviously, that's gone up since coronavirus. But again, a very, very uh, challenging uh, outlook for, for President Trump. That's a, that's a great summary. And, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, you're, you're laying out the reasons why, not simply what you think is going to happen. Charles, a couple of things you talked about there uh, that I want to follow up on. Do you have a sense of if 12 million people have already voted, do you have a sense of how many will actually vote before November 3rd, I believe it is? Uh, it, it, could it be, you know, literally a third or 40 percent of votes? I mean, is it is it going to go to 25? I mean, how many? Yeah, it's, unfortunately, we don't know. I wish we had a good answer, but it's impossible to predict, uh, you know, um, and it's it's impossible for two reasons. One, we've never seen this level of, you know, early and mail-in voting. Uh, you know, clearly many states have changed their rules because of COVID to allow it in, in, in many, many cases for the first time. Um, but secondly, uh, a lot of um, uh, uh, Americans have actually requested a mail-in ballot because in some states you can do that, like New York and Pennsylvania, you can get it, you can request a mail-in ballot but actually still go in person to vote. And so many uh, people have asked for a mail-in ballot as a backup plan. So unfortunately, it's very hard uh, with the data that, that's uh, provided to come up with any real um, estimate. But I'd, I'd say at the rate we're going, it's gonna be probably about 20%. I mean, it's, it could be higher. It's gonna be very, very interesting. Yeah, it's a staggering number. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it's been in the past, but I would assume it's a fraction of that. People used to vote on election day, that's it. Yeah, I mean, four years ago, it was uh, at this time uh, was less than four hundred thousand. Around four hundred thousand people had voted uh, early. Wow! So let, let's take the other side of it, which which you do all the time, and and uh, and I think one of the things you told me in two thousand sixteen, you were one of the few people who had a perspective on if President Trump, if candidate Trump, who then became president, won, what what could be expected, and you said you were in huge demand in the few days after President Trump won, because a lot, not a lot of people had spent time on that, and you had. So you do just keep turning this around and making sure the, 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 uh, the predictions you're making and the counsel you're giving is, is sound. So let's turn around. What does President Trump, who, by the way, uh, is, is on his feet and doesn't seem to me to, to, uh, to be uh, conceding anything, uh, what does he have to do in the last 20 days to change what you just said? Yeah. Great. And, and just to also say, yeah, so as a firm, we're nonpartisan and uh, we, we really are objective in our work because we have to. Uh, our clients are all buy side firms and they expect us to give them uh, an independent perspective, regardless of what our own personal views, uh, affiliations may be. And, and so uh, we test our, our thesis every day uh, in our, on our morning call, internal, in our internal morning call. We, we ask ourselves every day, 
what based on new information, where could we be wrong? Where, where, what could we be missing? And so um, I just say a couple of things first on where we could be, where we could be wrong, because it then is a, a segue into what President Trump can kind of do to turn this around still. Where we, where we could be wrong um, is on, in two potential areas that are related. Uh, first, there have been more Republicans that have uh, registered to vote, new, red, new voters that have registered to vote um, in, in a large number of states than Democrats in the last four years. That's an interesting trend. Unfortunately, there's not consistent data across every state, and some states don't even release whether it's a, you, you, you've registered with, with either party or as an independent. But of the data that is available, and some states have great data, like Florida, um, more Republicans have registered to vote in the last four years than Democrats. Um, so that is interesting to us, and you know we need to, to, to look at that. Um, uh, given those numbers that we see, though, it's not enough uh, from what we what we can tell for uh, it's not enough to change the outcome of the election. That there aren't enough of those new registered Republican voters. First of all, we don't even know if they're going to vote, but also um, uh, whether you know it's not enough to change the outcome of the election given the magnitude that you would need. Um, so that's one thing that we are keeping a very close eye on. The second thing, which is related, is the biggest pushback that I always get or we get uh, on our call, which is. You know, uh, there uh, four years ago, the polls missed the strength of support amongst uh, suburban voters, especially uh, well, all suburban voters, including suburban women, for President Trump. And the polls today might be also not picking up the strength of his support in the suburbs. Um, and relatedly, there's a silent majority, or there's such a large number of uh, shy Trump supporters who don't either participate in polls at all or don't want to admit they're going to vote for him. Uh, we hear that every day. And, and I, I understand the argument. I would just say two things. President Trump won four years ago in what was really not only one of the biggest political upsets anywhere in the world in modern history, literally, um, uh, but, but also it was a complete political anomaly. Uh, and, and in fact, if you remember, literally the morning after the election, he on his, in his first TV interview admitted he didn't expect to win. Uh, obviously, very quickly since then, myth-making always happens in politics, especially with the victor. And uh, the myth-making began that he knew all along. And of course, Jared had this great big data you know, program to predict it. The truth is Trump didn't expect to win. He won barely, but fairly, by the way, but barely, because the blue wall, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, went to Trump. Hillary, again, with the benefit of hindsight uh, and catastrophically, barely campaigned in those states. President Trump, to his credit, campaigned a lot there. Um, but he won those three states by less than 78,000 votes. It was a complete political anomaly. You actually have to go all the way back to the 1980s to find the last time that any one of those three states voted Democrat, uh, voted Republican in a, in a presidential. So it wasn't irrational for Hillary to think that she didn't really need to go there. It was the blue wall. So uh, one of the reasons he won those three states is suburban women. Uh, amazingly went to Trump four years ago. It was another big surprise for Hillary. She assumed she just assumed she'd have the majority woman vote. And in fact, that did not happen. Suburban women went to Trump two years. And that's partly how he won those swing states, uh, the blue wall. Um, uh, two years later in the midterms in 2018, suburban women came back to the Democratic Party in size. It's partly how they took back the House. But today are polling even more firmly in the Democratic column. That's why Last night at his rally in Johnstown, uh, Johnstown, PA, he was begging suburban women to like him. Um, so, so uh, coming, tying that back to this issue of a silent majority or enough support in the suburbs for President Trump to still win, um, he doesn't have suburban women. Uh, he doesn't have women at all, and that's the biggest voting block in the country. More women vote than men. The second demographic challenge he has is young voters. He never had young voters, but they didn't turn out in '16. Uh, we believe they'll turn out in record numbers uh, this November because of how politicized they are around issues like climate change, student debt, guns, abortion, equality, et cetera. So he doesn't have that either. So what we've been saying is that for every Trump either shy supporter or other that's not getting picked up in the polls, there's at least probably two either young or other voters that, it, that are also not getting picked up in polls. Young people don't participate in polls. Um, uh, there are at least probably two for every one Trump shy supporter that intend to vote Democratic. Um, so so we, we really have a, a hard time in all the data we look at in, in, in finding the, enough uh, of this silent majority for Trump to win. What he can do to turn it around, though, very importantly, I'd say there's uh, probably two things. One is beyond his control, which is if something catastrophic happens to Joe Biden. If Biden has a heart attack um, uh, or catches coronavirus 
uh, and unlike the president, does not bounce back incredibly. Uh, in fact, you know, I was saying just before this call that, you know, President Trump is more vigorous and more energetic now than he was even pre-COVID. I mean, his rally last night was incredible. So, so, but if something catastrophic were to happen to Biden, um, I think that, uh, that that President Trump would win because what would happen? We wouldn't move the date of the election because Congress has to approve that, and they wouldn't uh, agree to that. So Kamala would not have enough time to ascend to the top of the ticket, pick a vice president quickly, roll that new ticket out in time for November third. So that's one thing that could happen. The, the other thing, though, that um, President Trump is working on um, is uh, 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 coming up with evidence, whether it's real or manufactured, of corruption. By, by Joe Biden and his son Hunter. It's on the front page of the New York Post this morning. Um, but but you know this ongoing allegation. But again, the possibility of evidence, again real or not, of corruption in Ukraine. I'm not sure that's enough to change the election or the outcome. But that's we're going to hear more about that. And lastly, I would just say quickly, if the president really wanted to, uh, if, if if there was a national security crisis in the next three weeks, again whether it's real or manufactured, that might change the course of the of the election. Um, but barring that, uh, we don't see too much else that the president can do. And if I can, sorry for the long answer, just quickly say that um, uh, President Trump has bounced back almost miraculously. I mean, he deserves an enormous amount of credit for his uh, stamina and his enthusiasm. Um, and no one, including us, predicted that he would um, be out on the campaign trail looking and sounding as good as he is right now. So he does deserve a lot of credit for that. You know, Charles, when you, when you when you factor all that in, including uh, the things that that are on the Democratic side, but uh, but President Trump and the tenacity that he brings, even right through having the virus, do you think we could have uh, record turnout in the country between voting in advance and voting that Tuesday? Will this be one of the most uh, contested in terms of numbers presidential elections in modern time? Yes. I think we will have record turnout on both sides. Um, uh, you know, we're, 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 most of the data that we're looking at, though, is showing um, uh, far less enthusiasm on the Trump side. Um, and it's not necessarily um, uh, amongst his base, who obviously are more fired up than ever. Where President Trump has lost ground is with some of the, uh, again, key demographics, especially in swing states that he won in, in 16. Uh, I, I mentioned suburban women and young voters. He never had young voters, but I think they will turn out in record numbers. But he's lost suburban women. He's also lost another very key demographic, which I don't see him turning around in three weeks, which is senior voters. So 65 and older voters in what's been one of the biggest surprises so far to us this campaign cycle um, uh, uh, is a group that um, President Trump won four years ago by seven points. He won that demographic. Uh, and in fact, in Florida, he won them by an even bigger number. Uh, this cycle, a majority of senior voters are polling for Biden uh, by uh, double digits. Actually, we don't, you know, the numbers are all over the place, but it, you know, anywhere from sort of, you know, 10 to, to 15%, some polls even higher. It's one of the reasons Biden's ahead in Florida and Arizona. So, so again, hard for President Trump to turn this around. I think that uh, the last quick thing I would just say on it is that, um, you know, the Lazarus sort of narrative of him rising from the ashes and, you know, coming back strong and, and, and crushing the virus and winning. Um, and, and part of that narrative will be the announcement of a vaccine. I think, you know, he's been telling us that for a long time. Again, whether it's real or not, doesn't matter. It's a winning political argument. Um, but, but, you know, even with that, uh, the polling is not helping him. He's, you know, I think the polls will narrow a little more as we head into November. Typically, our elections are much closer. But he's had two huge setbacks, uh, entirely uh, self-inflicted, frankly. The first was the debate performance. Uh, all the numbers out of that showed that Trump lost even more supporters, um, especially independents, after the first debate. And then even more importantly was the cor catching coronavirus. Uh, he didn't get any sympathy bump. Boris Johnson, and Bolsonaro in Brazil both got pretty big bumps in the polls in their respective countries after they contracted the virus. President Trump's numbers uh, actually uh, ended up being worse. Uh, they, they, Biden pulled even further ahead because, I think, of the credibility gap the president has on this and the view that he was reckless um, uh, in catching it, frankly. So, so, you know, again, I do expect the polls to narrow in answer to your question. It will be closer than it appears today, um, but I don't see a path for the president, uh, barring any of those Again, really unusual, uh, almost hypothetical, as I mentioned. Okay, so let's go um, to another key part of this election. Let's go to the Senate. 
given that the House will stay uh, firmly Democratic and we may have a, a Democratic president or not, but let's just focus on the Senate for a second. So uh, where do you see the Senate going? Is it How closely is it tied to whether President Trump wins again or not? Uh, you know, you've got all the races that everybody's watching and you're the expert on Collins and, you know, the different states. You know, I was, you know, Susan Collins in Maine and other places. So what do you think happens to the Senate? Yeah, so our view is that uh, the Democrats will uh, take the Senate, uh, again, with probably a, a two or three seat majority. Um, and so the races to watch, uh, just to put it in context, so the Democrats have 12 seats that they have to defend this uh, election, this cycle. They're going to lose Alabama. Uh, so they, they, they need to hold the other 11, which we think they will, and then win four more to get a majority. And so the four that we think they'll win first and in order of highest conviction um, is Colorado, uh, secondly, Arizona. The Democratic challengers in both those states are polling so far ahead that it looks like the Democrats will win those two seats. So they need to win two more of the following. Uh, it looks like the Democrats will win in Maine. I think Susan Collins has been unbeatable for decades, actually, uh, 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 given her association and support for pre uh, of President Trump and, and her vote uh, for Kavanaugh in the Supreme Court. Uh, has really hurt her in Maine. And so I think she will lose that. And then uh, the Democrats, I believe, will also win uh, either North Carolina, Montana, and or Iowa. So those are the other ones that we're watching closely. In North Carolina, the Democratic challenger uh, just got caught up, got caught basically with a sexting uh, scandal and an affair. It's always amazing how, that, during the campaign, by the way, always amazing uh, how politicians on both sides can't managed to keep themselves out of trouble, um, which should just be so obvious. Um, but his poll numbers haven't been hurt yet by those revelations, but we need to watch that one in North Carolina. Um, and then I would say for the Democrats, so right there again, the Democrats could probably win four to five, maybe six seats. But the other three that the Democrats are optimistic on that I don't think they'll take are one of the two Georgia seats. Uh, I don't think they'll win in Alaska or in Kansas. But again, those are those last states I mentioned are a little cl too close for uh, the Republican side to be comfortable with. So, again, a lot will depend on how well Biden does coattails and is it a massive blue wave. But it looks like probably a three or four seat majority. OK, so now can we set up the matrix? Because this is uh, from a policy standpoint, and I know you're looking at it this way. Uh, you've got uh, new President Biden with the Senate without. You've got President Trump in a second term with the Senate without. Can you talk a little bit about what fits into the four quadrants in terms of policy differences, depending upon president and Senate? You know, uh, and really, let, why don't we, uh, if you don't mind commenting on all four possibilities, since they're all real possibilities still, we'll see. Yeah, great. Um, so I'm going to do them in the opposite order because uh, President Trump in a second term is easier to describe. Uh, Biden is, will take a little bit longer. But um, the, the, the first, if I can say that regardless of who wins on November 3rd, um, uh, whether it's President Trump or Joe Biden, uh, one of the biggest changes next year is that taxes are going up. And I say that, and we get a lot of pushback on that because, again, President Trump is running very explicitly on a platform to lower taxes. Um, uh, the reason taxes are going to go up regardless next year is because in a scenario where President Trump has won re-election, uh, it means he's also kept the Senate but not the House. And the Democrats in the House, in, by July of next year, because of the debt ceiling has to be raised, which can only be raised by a vote in both chambers of Congress. The Democrats in the House will hold the Trump uh, administration hostage and force him to raise taxes in exchange for lifting the debt ceiling. And in that instance, it's mostly corporate tax that will go up. President Trump's not gonna have a choice. Um, uh, if Biden wins, uh, he intends to raise taxes anyway, so it's kind of a non-issue, the debt ceiling will be raised. So on the scenarios, uh, President Trump in a second term, again, if he wins re-election, that means he's also won the Senate. It means it's, you know, polling was so wrong, all of us were wrong, and he's, you know, uh, very much uh, like the situation we have today. Um, and I think in a second term, what we would see is, uh, again, an ongoing focus on judicial appointments, uh, maybe possibly not the Supreme Court, but you know, uh, many other level, layers uh, and levels on the judicial appointment side. And then an ongoing push uh, and, and a huge priority on further deregulation. Uh, where President Trump has done the most deregulation has been in the uh, energy sector, uh, but there's so much, so much else he can do, some of it through executive action uh, and, and some through Congress potentially. Um, but I don't see a lot of other legislative 
of progress. I think you would see in, an, in a scenario where President Trump has won re-election, the Democratic Party would, would be so deeply traumatized uh, at the prospect of getting it wrong again and four more years that I think you would see Nancy Pelosi and the House of Representatives become a much more obstructionist uh, and activist house uh, and really uh, uh, not even trying to work with the administration, but doing everything they can to uh, frustrate any efforts by the administration to get anything done legislatively. Um, so I, I think the one exception to that might be infrastructure. Uh, it's one of the unfinished promises uh, of, of President Trump's first term, and everybody likes infrastructure. So, so I think under a president uh, second term, we would just see more, a little bit more of the same, uh, but a bigger push uh, on on uh, deregulation and and infrastructure in foreign policy. Just quickly, I think President Trump in a second term, we would see a much more assertive foreign policy. President Trump has kept his promise to take us out of, uh, you know, uh, foreign countries, keep us out of wars. Um, but in a second term, there would be some unfinished business. I think regime change in Venezuela is a clear one. I, again, I think that will be a negotiated uh, regime change, not a, a military invasion. Um, but there's unfinished business in Iran. I think North Korea is bubbling up again. And, and I think you would see President Trump really double down on China, not just in trade, but in many other areas. Um, so, so again, I think a, a far more assertive foreign policy. If, if Biden wins, um, uh, you know, and, and has the uh, Senate, actually, let me start the other way. If Biden wins without the Senate, uh, it's almost kind of the same issue, which is there will be almost complete gridlock, legislative gridlock. And while people, um, especially in the markets, uh, tend to say that's the best outcome. Gridlock is the best outcome. Historically, that's been true because it means that no president on either side can get their most radical you know, policies through. I would argue gridlock this time is actually a negative for the markets and the economy because there's a need for another emergency stimulus bill. There's a need for um, uh, infrastructure and other government spending. And and uh, if, if you know Biden can't get any of that done because of a Republican Congress, uh, sorry, a Republican Senate, then I think um, it's not good for the country, frankly, the economy or the markets. Um, so to, to end on our base case of, of Biden, a Biden victory with the Senate, there are very big changes coming, both in domestic and foreign policy, some of which I think are underappreciated. And the biggest change is tax increases. And while it's getting attention, uh, it's not getting enough. The, the details and the timing are not getting enough attention, we believe. Um, and so uh, if I can just spend a, a minute on it, um, you know, uh, uh, to say that, you know, Biden intends to raise both corporate and personal tax next year by a magnitude a much greater, much bigger magnitude than perhaps people realize. So on the corporate tax side, he wants to raise corporate tax in five ways. The base rate gets the most attention from 21 to 28 percent. Again, pretty straightforward. It doesn't sound that terrible. Um, used to be 35 percent pre-Trump. But, but that's only part of it. He also wants to raise taxes in four additional ways, corporate tax in four additional ways. First, to double the tax on foreign earnings of U.S. companies to 21 percent very big increase. It will affect every U.S. multinational. Uh, 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 that's number two. The third is a payroll tax increase of 12%. 6% company on the company side, 6% on the employee side. Uh, fourth is a flat 15% tax on book income. If Biden wins, we're all going to be talking about book income next year. It affects companies mainly that use stock-based compensation to report much lower uh, earnings and pay less tax, and in some cases pay no tax. Very big issue. It's not getting nearly enough attention. Uh, we do think that will get through. All of this will get through Congress. And lastly, just quickly, he, a new one he rolled out the other uh, about two weeks ago in Michigan: a 10% tax or surcharge on companies that outsource. Uh, again, how they're going to enforce that? Or there's also 10%. Uh, incentive if you onshore, but how they're going to enforce that last one, we don't know. But but nonetheless, we think all this will get through a Democratic Senate next year because he'll do it through the budget reconciliation process, which only requires 51 votes. On the on the personal side, uh, he wants to raise taxes on anyone making over $400,000 a year. Um, he wants to get rid of the carried interest loophole. You know, Biden is um, mild. He's actually like obsessed with the carried interest loophole. He talks about it all the time, internally, externally. Um, it was the only tax increase that actually made it into the Democratic Party platform at, in the convention in August. It tells you how serious that he feels about this, uh, the, the, the tax 
how seriously he feels about the, the, the carried interest loophole going away, but also, very importantly, raising capital gains and dividend tax to ordinary rates for anyone making a million dollars or more. Um, again, for many people in our world, uh, that is a big issue. I can tell you that the politics around that are not as difficult as some people believe. Most voters don't make a million dollars a year. It is a fraction of the 1%. Uh, it's about a little over 500,000 people in the U.S., and I think it will be hard for a Republican Senate to push back on that. Lastly, uh, to lower the cap on the amount that you can pass to your heirs through estate tax from $23 million to $7 million, um, uh, very importantly, and also raising estate tax from 40 to 45 percent. Again, I think that gets through as well. So my point on all of this is just that taxes are going up a lot more than people think. The average hit to the uh, S&P 500 companies is between 10 and 12 percent next year to EPS. Um, and, and that's an average, right? So some companies is higher and some are lower. Um, and, and lastly, if I can, um, and, and, uh, and then I'm happy to talk about some of the other sectors that we should be thinking about. But um, uh, on the timing of this, this is one of the biggest misperceptions around the Biden team is there's a narrative which the sell side mainly is putting out. I think they're in a way maybe telling clients what they want to hear. But but the narrative is that Biden's going to inherit a weak economy with high unemployment. That's true. And therefore go slower on tax increases, maybe not do them at all. Be very careful with that one. But also that um, if the legislation is approved next year, he may phase them in starting in 2022. I'm here to tell you that is not that is not what Biden is thinking at all. Uh, his team, he and his team are 2,000 percent committed to raising taxes next year, and the reason is very straightforward. It's it's three main things. The first is for Biden, it's a moral issue. He truly believes that one of the sources of inequality in this country is the tax code, uh, whether it's income inequality, gender inequality, racial inequality. I'm not advocating, by the way. I'm just articulating the Biden position. Um, but that the tax code has to be uh, changed, and that the majority of the benefits of the Trump tax cuts actually benefited companies and the wealthiest Americans. That's what they believe. So for them, it's a moral issue. And in politics, anytime anything is moral, we should they, they, people see things as moral. Uh, we should be very concerned because it means it's ideological and not grounded in reality. Second reason he wants to raise tax next year is more practical, which is he wants to launch a two and a half plus trillion dollar infrastructure and other spending program, and he's got to get revenue partly for the debt ceiling, but in general. So it's critical to get revenue. And third is he knows he's only got one shot next year to get this done if he has control of both houses. Um, and uh, he will not make the taxes effective next year. He will make them retroactive to Jan 1, 2021. It's the only way it works, uh, given the amount of spending he wants to do. So so uh, just end there, I would say that, you know, it's probably one of the most underpriced risks in the U.S. equity market today because um, on the corporate side, because most sell side and buy side analysts have yet to incorporate uh, incorporate those potential uh, five tax increases, which don't apply to every company, but have yet to really put them into their models for next year. Many, many analysts are actually putting them in for 2022. Um, so again, we'd be very careful with that uh, narrative. Let me ask uh, one uh, follow-up question to that, and then I've got some interesting questions that have come in over the transom for you, uh, and then we'll, we'll head to the, the uh, latter part of my questions. Uh, what is the dollar amount across corporate and personal for everything that you just uh, laid out? I mean, are we talking $3 trillion of tax increases? Is that, you know, the number that comes out of that? Yeah, so it's it's been a little all over the place, um, but it works out to about $3.4 over 10 years. Um, so just to, and I should have said that at the outset, the plan is to raise uh, these taxes, um, and and ultimately, it's a ten-year estimate of about over three trillion that they believe they will collect. Um, so you know, and, and and the reason they think of it that way is it, it sounds less um, uh, alarming, um, perhaps to voters, but also uh, their infrastructure plan and other spending also tends to be on a ten-year uh, budget horizon as well. So, the, but they're continuing; they're very focused on continuing to to have serious levels of deficit spending. Yes. If going to raise 3.4 trillion and have a two trillion dollar two and a half trillion dollar infrastructure plan this isn't a deficit reduction notion correct taking the money and spending it somewhere else absolutely i, I wish i could say they, they wanted to raise taxes to uh address the deficit uh it'll only be partially to address the deficit because of the debt ceiling that has to be raised but the truth is both sides are equally guilty of abandoning fiscal responsibility because in addition to the massive infrastructure uh plan and and 
program and legislation he wants to get through. The, the Democrats, as everyone knows, want to get at least $2 trillion of, of uh, emergency stimulus done either now or right after inauguration. So, so you got to factor another $2 trillion on top of the you know, $2.5 trillion of infrastructure. Yeah. So a few questions from the audience. First, um, uh, from Sharon Magner, uh, she asks, uh, and I'm sure you get this uh, a fair amount, how do you remain unbiased while covering such divisive material? <laughs> well, I've been doing it a very long time. And when you do this a long time, uh, you, you learn, and, and the fact that we do look at everything around the world, um, you know, you learn to uh, check your bias. Uh, it's not that you don't have a personal bias. All of us do in, in some form, uh, but you learn uh, to check it very quickly and to constantly test not only your own bias, but to test your thesis. Um, and, and so we're constant, as I mentioned earlier, we are always asking ourselves, again, on, on anything, not just on the U.S. election, we you know other big calls elsewhere, but, but again, where can we be wrong? You know, what is the data telling us? Things change every day. What is the new data telling? What's new news telling us? Um, so we are always testing ourselves. Um, and the other, you know, incredible uh, accountability that we have on, on making sure that we're not biased um, are our clients. Uh, the minute we started putting out really biased research, for example, our clients would drop us immediately. So we're very mindful of the need to stay uh, completely neutral uh, in our calls. Yeah. And your clients are both, as you said, buy and sell side, or is it mostly buy side? Uh, almost all buy side. Yeah. Uh, uh, long only and, and hedge funds and some sovereign wealth funds. Okay. So another question uh, that was uh, mailed in, uh, this one came in anonymously, uh, but this is something that's on the minds of a lot of our team here at Rockefeller, as well as our clients. Uh, and it's a completely unfair question, so get ready. Uh, it's a market call. Could you please give your opinion of what happens to the markets from 11-3-2020 to 6-30-2020 in three scenarios, so mid midway through next year? Okay. That really, in, in terms of timing, it's an inter interesting way to ask it because um, if uh, President Trump's reelected, he's six months into his second term. If Biden wins, he's you're going to know what's happening on taxes. So markets should have assimilated a lot of this, I would think, by that time. So the first scenario is President Trump is reelected. What happens to markets through the middle of next year? And then the second one is Biden's elected and serves through that time. And then the third hypothetical here was Biden is elected and steps down so Harris can serve as president. You may not have thought of that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a great question and one we get asked every day you know, from our clients as well um, and, and one that we do spend quite a bit of time on. So I would say, uh, and I'll address the three scenarios in a second, but just first of, of all, if I can, by way of context to say that, you know, the coronavirus um, has changed uh, everything in, in our lives and in, in all aspects, so many aspects of our lives have been changed because of coronavirus. And so one of the many changes, um, I believe, is also uh, uh, with the stock market, because um, in the past, uh, if we if coronavirus had not happened, if this were a normal, not that it has been normal, but if it were a more normal presidential election in the U.S., the U.S. equity market would have already been selling off and discounting a Biden victory, these tax increases and other. And, and instead, what we're finding is that, uh, again, coronavirus has distorted, in a way, perhaps the uh, forward-looking or discounting mechanism in the in the U.S. financial markets on the election. So that, And I say that because most of our clients that we talk to um, are much more focused on the positives right now. They're focused on uh, uh, the possibility of new stimulus, whether it's now or in you know a couple months. Uh, again, if Trump's if, if 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 it's not now, I'm so optimistic that actually the two sides can get together with the White House and get something done actually before the election. But if it's not and Trump wins, it'll be right after the election. If if Biden wins, it'll be in January. So there's um, everyone's focusing on stimulus, and it's going to be pretty big, right? 1.8 trillion is a lot of stimulus, um, uh, and so there's there's that as a positive. Secondly. Um, unprecedented liquidity from the Fed. You know, we sometimes uh, overlook that, but the Fed has stepped into every corner of the financial market and really overstepped clearly their mandate uh, in, in, in a number of ways that, you know, we need to look at in the future. Um, but they are continuing to push pump and just announced uh, just in the minutes, as you all know, the other day said they're going to uh, probably embark on more QE. So, you're, you know, fighting this wall of liquidity, this incredible amount of liquidity with, with at the same time incredibly low interest rates is very hard to be short U.S. equities. Um, and then thirdly, if I can just quickly, uh, the markets are very focused on any advancements in therapeutics and vaccine. Uh, some, and there's some encouraging you know, data, encouraging progress. So once you look at all of that, 
trying to discount uh, an election result that, you know, even though it looks increasingly like Biden, the market's not there yet. So my, my, the reason I've done this lead up is to say that um, the equity market is probably going to be, we're going to see more of a reactive reaction, meaning, and, and one more thing, if I can, there are enough market participants who, even though they will publicly say, yeah, Biden's probably going to win, <laughs> um, uh, privately, they will say to me, and these are founders of hedge funds, C CIOs, they'll say, you know, I think Trump's somehow just going to pull this off. And so there's also a little bit of that going on, which is fascinating to me, and maybe he will, but uh, you know. But my point is, I think that we're going to see more of a delayed reaction, more of a reaction uh, to the election as opposed to the market, you know, discounting it in advance. So I'm so in answer to your question, I'm a little worried about the market um, uh, post-election, and and I say that because there's two possibilities uh, of, of disruption. First is a contested outcome. You know, uh, people forget, but the U.S. equity market sold off eight percent after the uh, Bush v. Gore. Uh, disputed election in 2000. Literally, uh, in that month of b between the election and December 10th, when the Supreme Court finally ruled, uh, the U.S. market sold off 8%, which back then was a huge move. Uh, it, it is still a big move, but but you know today maybe with all the volatility, it doesn't feel as big. But but we need to be mindful of the possibility of a too close or contested election. That's not our base case, by the way, but it could happen. But secondly, um, if Trump wins, to, to just go through your scenarios, I think the market rallies. Uh, I think people will believe uh, that he is going to. Uh, cut taxes, push through deregulation, continue to be very business friendly. Um, and, and that is all uh, very supportive, uh, along with the Fed for equities. Absolutely. Um, I think reality will set in in that scenario, <clears throat> maybe in March, April, May, as we get closer, where the debt ceiling starts to become an issue. And I think we'll be looking over the fiscal cliff again, like we did in, two, in 2011. Um, and the markets, as we all remember, because there was this real possibility of the U.S. to possibly defaulting, technically defaulting, the markets, uh, the volatility was very high during that period. So that's that that worries me in that scenario. So uh, I think that the, the, the outcome there, the market would sell off closer to, you know, late spring. If Biden wins, um, again, I think that uh, even though he's going to have a mostly centrist administration, not totally, but mostly, uh, a lot will depend on what kind of cabinet he appoints, which he'll start doing if he wins right after November 3rd. And I'm happy to come back to that because I have some really good color on who I think he's going to appoint into key positions. But, but um, you know, everything he does in that interim transition period of cabinet really um, laying out in much more detail his first 100 days, et cetera, the market will be watching that very, very closely. And I think we'll start to realize he's far more serious about raising taxes than perhaps people today think. And I think you get a little bit of a repricing of, of U.S. equities, mostly to the downside, but also on a sector basis, right? There's going to be punitive action against pharma, big tech, and energy, fossil fuels, but huge opportunities in, in other sectors. So I think that has to be kind of priced in. Um, and I think that happens after November 3rd. If Biden steps down uh, to let Kamala run, um, he's not going to do that unless he has a major health issue. Um, but I'm uh, absolutely convinced he will not run for re-election. And so as a quick aside, not necessarily super relevant for this question, but, you know, they're going to be, uh, if Biden wins, in a real uh, difficult situation two years from now, because the presidential campaign starts two years from now, um, <laughs> you know, right after the midterms. And and if Biden's not going to run for re-election, if he says that, Kamala's going to run, but Biden will be seen as a lame duck for two years. I mean, completely useless. It's a terrible thing for a president. If, um, if in fact, uh, that is the plan, but they don't want to say that yet, right, then Kamala could be at a huge disadvantage not having had enough time or as much time to run as president because she's still officially only VP. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. But Kamala, uh, my view is if Biden wins, Kamala will be the candidate in four years. Uh, I don't see Biden running for re-election. He'll, he'll be um, uh, 82 years old in four years. Uh, that's something they're probably uh, keeping very close to the vest at this point, though, because... Yes. Uh, you know, the you know, the, there really be almost two candidates running against President Trump, and and you could you could pull at both of them. Yeah. Uh, I have a follow up question, which came from Barry Wintner, which is a good one. Uh, it's uh, if uh, if Biden wins, but with only a 50-50 Senate, yeah. what do you think happens from a tax standpoint? And obviously, taxes and markets are clear uh, clearly very important to uh, to the clients and uh, and the people on the phone here. Yeah, so I'd say that in that scenario, which is also you know very possible. Uh, the, the vice president, if Kamala would be the tie, she would cast the tie, you know, the tiebreaker, right, as, as always the case. Um, and because Biden intends to get his tax increases through Congress, uh, through the budget reconciliation process, he only needs 51 votes. 
Uh, it's one of the, the rare instances, anything that's budget related once a year, you can get through reconciliation with 51 votes, not 60. So I think uh, even in that uh, literally 50-50 scenario, uh, Kamala would cast, uh, I think every Democrat would vote for this and Kamala would also, and therefore it would still get through. Much harder, but it would still get through. There are a couple of Democratic senators, you know, uh, like Manchin, for example, in West Virginia, you know, who are almost Republican, but even he would probably vote for these tax increases. They may have to water them down a little bit, but I think it would still get through. So here's a question that kind of goes to uh, the fact that the the so many people, including, as you said, your clients, people running hedge funds, CIOs, who say to me, we're just not convinced uh, that, uh, that President Trump doesn't pull this out. And there's no question that's in the fabric everywhere. And he did it, as you said, once. Uh, so, there, you know, there's a lot of people thinking that's still a possibility and it may in fact happen. So uh, one question that came through uh, from Jason Stern is, do you feel as though there's any significant issue uh, in the contemporary world with people uh, not telling the truth on polls more than pr previously uh, for whatever reason? And you also should mention, um, Charles, uh, we've talked about this in the past, that Pollsters are, I guess, mostly still calling landlines. So literally anybody under the age of 40 doesn't participate because they don't have a landline. And that's almost, you know, 40 percent of the electorate. But what about polls? Because uh, it, it has got to be the thing that, that uh, sits in the back of, you know, even people data driven by like yourself after 2016. And that's part of the whole thing here. Why everybody's going to be gathered around election night. Because, um, uh, you know, there's just not a lot of confidence in a lot of quarters on polls. So do you think people are, are more likely to mislead a pollster today than in the past? And can you tell the, the audience a little bit about how polls work today and why they're imperfect, uh, given the change in technology and the fact that, uh, you, you know, many people just don't participate because of that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And again, uh, the, the issue where if you know, if polls are off again, uh, obviously uh, so many people will be wrong, right? Ourselves included, obviously, but so many people will be wrong. Um, and I'd say a couple things. One, you know, uh, we work with a lot of polling companies uh, and, and we always only look at an average of polls. We never look at any one, you know, one-off poll, obviously, in, in isolation. Um, but poll uh, uh, polling companies, pollsters uh, took 2016 and how badly they got it wrong very personally, as they should have, by the way. In fact, some of them should, and, and if it happens again, we should put them all out of business. Uh, literally, if any of you subscribe to any of them, just use them in any way, just cut them off. Because, But but they, they took it personally and they've changed some of the way that they actually do the, the polling. Um, so most of it's landline, but not all of it. There is actually um, a, a number of the polling companies that now also do um, online uh, to try to correct for what happened um, uh, four years ago. But there's some other big differences as well. Um, you know, I saw a number the other day that at this point, four years ago, there had only been about seven state polls in Wisconsin, interestingly. Today, that number is multiples of that. So pollsters have not only changed their methodology to try to make them a little better, but if you also, uh, they're also polling much more frequently, uh, especially in swing states, right? Because that's what matters. The national polling doesn't, is, is, is important directionally, but doesn't really matter otherwise. So, so that's another key difference is that there are far more state polls. So what we would watch most, clo most closely as we get you know, even closer are state polls in uh, the six uh, to eight swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, critically, very important. And there's many more of them. You can get them all at realclearpolitics.com or 538. Again, they're averages. Um, you can do your own average if you want. And then um, after that, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, and if you also want to expand it a bit, Ohio, um, uh, you know, there's other, you know, swing states, Iowa, but, but you know, really um, they've gotten better and more frequent. Uh, and, and that combined with far fewer undecided voters, I think they're a little more accurate. Again, I'm not trying, I'm not here to defend the polling industry, the, 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 you know, um, you know, so, so, you know, there's, it's still fraught with problems, but I think that, um, all of that combined with just the last quick point that Biden's lead again is so wide, even in most of these swing states, that um, it would be hard for the outcome to change. And and if I can also just to say that, um, you know, uh, uh, four years ago, uh, and and this uh, this analysis has been done not by us but by an independent uh, quant uh, firm. But um, you know, if you look at the correlation historically between how much you have to win the popular vote. Uh, uh, to also win the Electoral College. Interestingly, Hillary, she was only three three points ahead on election day 
uh, from President Trump, she had a 55% chance of winning the Electoral College based on, again, an analysis of that correlation. That's actually in a 50-50 outcome, not great. That, that you know, didn't mean she was, you know, as far as, far ahead as people thought. Um, and today, uh, and, and so just applying that to today, um, if you have uh, an eight or nine percent advantage in the polls, you have a 99 percent chance of winning the Electoral College. And I know that sounds just like 2016, where everyone was saying that Hillary had such a high chance of winning. So, of course, it could be wrong, but I think there are enough changes for it to probably not uh, be. Let me let me invert it for you, though, one more time and say, um, if President Trump wakes up on November 3rd with the second term, how did it look? Which states did he carry that he had to carry? Yeah, so the two, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, and, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are aware of this uh, website, but 270 to win is, is amazing because you can go on and you can play around yourself with the different states of where, where you think either President Trump or Biden will win. Um, and President Trump's path to the uh, to victory in the Electoral College is very narrow. It's not impossible, by the way. So I, I totally disagree with Democrats who say that. But but um, he has to win uh, Pennsylvania, Florida, and at least four of, uh, or five of the other swing states. It's, it's very, very challenging for him. Um, and we think that uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan will go to, to Joe Biden. He's so much further ahead. In fact, uh, President Trump has stopped advertising in Wisconsin and Michigan, which is a concession that he doesn't think he's going to win those two states. In fact, Michigan's no longer even considered a toss-up. It's now back in the blue column. But he would, you know, so, so what I would say in answer to that, to that question, and it brings us to this issue of how will we know the result, because it's kind of connected. So on the night of November 3rd, uh, what, what I would watch most closely um, is uh, uh, for example, uh, Florida, very importantly. So let me take a quick step back if I can. Of the eight swing states that will decide the outcome of this election, five of them allow early voting, early processing, and early counting. So of the, of the eight that will matter, five of them uh, will release the result, a preliminary result of their state right after the last poll closes in their state. So Florida is one of them. In fact, of the, of the eight, the only three that don't are Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Those will take longer. All the other of the five key swing states will release most likely a preliminary result on the night of the third. That's why we think as a firm that there will be a, at least a, a preliminary and, and widely accepted result, if not on the night of the third, within 24 or 48 hours. Um, so we're not a buyer of all the doomsday scenarios of a months long drawn out uh, uh, contested election. But, but what we would watch most closely on the night of the third is Florida. Florida is going to be absolutely key. If Biden wins Florida that night, the election's over. There's almost mathematically no way for President Trump to still win. Um, so that's a really important uh, thing to watch. And I would even within Florida, because sometimes counties uh, report earlier, Pinellas County is critical right outside of Tampa, kind of Tampa, St. Pete. That is a critical district to watch on the night of November 3rd. So again, um, President Trump, you know, I think he's going to do better in Pennsylvania than the polling is suggesting. I don't know if Trump will win it, but I think his support there is probably stronger. Um, but even if Biden loses Pennsylvania, uh, he can still win. So, uh, you know, mathematically, it's going to be quite challenging for President Trump. But, so, but just to recap for uh, the uh you know that side of the equation. If if he takes Florida and Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, then it's a very competitive night all the way around. Absolutely, and and we won't know uh, Pennsylvania on the night of because it's one of the states that actually allows the longest time after November third to still count the ballots. So Pennsylvania may be the most delayed of all of the swing states. Um, but if he but if it looks like he's won uh, Florida and looks like he's you know way ahead in, in Pennsylvania if there is any preliminary result. Um, it means that President Trump has done much better than expected. And that means he's also probably going to win Ohio, which today looks like it's going to go for Biden. It means he's probably won North Carolina. Uh, you know, so at that point, like four years ago on the night of the election, when Hillary lost Florida, I was at her, you know, victory party. Um, but, you know, uh, that's when the entire, you know, everyone went cold and quiet. I mean, that's when people suddenly realize that maybe this thing is not going to turn out the way they'd hoped. Um, so uh, Florida is absolutely critical. Can I ask you, Charles, uh, and we're running out of time, but this is worth following up on. Pinellas County, Florida. So we have 330 million Americans, uh, yeah. 120, 30 million who are going to vote this time. Maybe, you know, maybe more. We'll see. Um, 
you know, a massive uh, effort by the, on the part of both parties, uh, you know, uh, maybe the, the most important election in a long time. And you're telling me that Pinellas County, Florida could be an early indicator of whether President Trump is reelected or Biden actually pulls this off. Can you tell me why? Can you tell us why? Why? What, what in Pinellas County, Florida makes it so dispositive for the end result? It's a it's a early it will be an important early indicator because it is a purple district that has gone both ways historically uh, in presidential elections. And so, uh, uh, again, and, and we don't know if Pinellas will uh, report earlier than, you know, other counties. But if it does, uh, that will be a very early and I don't want to overstate it. It's not going to be this will be the exact outcome of the entire election. But I'm watching that because if Trump wins Pinellas, then it means he's got more support than people think. Okay. Yeah. Well, this this has been uh, fantastic, uh, and and you know to the question that came in on how do you remain unbiased? One of the reasons we have you here is you're data driven, and doing the work for buy side institutions who are looking to be positioned on the back of what happens to in, get better investment performance, make more for their clients. This is not about um, you know it's really for them not about politics. It's about the implications of politics on their investment strategies, their performance, and how they're doing for their clients. And they're the ones hiring you. So uh, thank you for, for being here. It was fantastic uh, insights uh, and, and presented in as even-handed a manner as is possible in a country that is very, very focused on this topic. Uh, so I appreciate you being here, Charles. Uh, uh, thank you to um, uh, our uh, clients, uh, our team at Rockefeller and friends of Rockefeller that are listening here. I told Charles I always end uh, with the quotation, and I will for uh, for everybody again today. And a, and a bit of an early message, which I'll repeat as we get closer to the election, to our team at Rockefeller Capital Management. Uh, but it is a, a very uh, important election in our nation's history. And wherever you are in terms of your views, the only way you have an impact, and I relay this all the time to the three millennials and Generation Z that I'm raising is to vote. So the quotation that I leave everybody with is from somebody who has almost universal respect across the spectrum in a very divided country and world now. And that is Abraham Lincoln, who said, and I quote, the ballot is stronger than the bullet. So Lincoln saw it and knew it. Uh, so everybody, what you need to do on the back of, of this uh, is get out and vote. Uh, on November 3rd uh, and express your preference. Charles, thanks again for being here. Thank you to all of our clients. All the best for the rest of the week. And we will continue to bring differentiated content from Rockefeller Capital Management for the benefit of our clients during this time. All the best.